Any of you joining us? Uh, greetings, I'm Joel. I greet you all online and anyone who's here. Um, welcome to Advent in Isaiah. And today we're going to look at actually what is the fourth servant song in Isaiah. It's actually found in verses 52.13 through 53.12. I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn there. It's also in your bulletin. We provide it there on page 7 or page 5. Um, this song something else. We did it actually recently in our Bible study, and we took two weeks on it. There's so much in it. And what I realized as I was meditating on it this week, it's, it's a song that reveals just how superficial we really all are, how much we judge things by their appearances, and particularly, and I want to take this in, how we view God and his saving actions in this world. What do you mean, Joel? Let me help us lean into this by an illustration. There's a story of a woman who's driving on the interstate. And she looks in her rearview mirror and she sees, bearing down on her, right on her rear bumper, this giant semi. This kind of unnerves her, as you can imagine. So she hits the gas, speeds up a little bit, gets some space. She looks back, still right on her bearing down right on her bumper so she really hits the gas all right she is speeding thank goodness looks in the rearview mirror still there right on her rear bumper she's unnerved she's speeding she's like i'm just going to jump off on this first exit get off the interstate flustered she noticed the truck follows her right off the exit now she's really upset right can you imagine So she's coming to the first stoplight and she notices it turns yellow. So she hits the gas so she can just make it through right as the light turns red. Imagine her horror when the semi blows right through the red light and stays right on her. She looks and she sees a gas station and you can imagine what she does. So she peels off, pulls into the parking lot, stops her car, jumps out and runs into the gas station. She's yelling at the manager, hey, 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 this guy in this truck, he's following me. So her and the manager go up to the glass window. They see the guy. He jumps out of his truck, runs straight over to her car, opens the rear door, and pulls out a man who's been hiding in the back all along. Would her judgment of the truck driver change as she watches him apprehend this rapist who, unbeknownst to her, had stolen away in her back seat? And only this truck driver from his high vantage point could actually see the danger. I hope you feel a little convicted because, friends, probably all of us have been doing it this week. God in love has been pursuing us, but we only imagine the worst as he tries to chase us down. And we run away as fast as we can at times. So often we see God as this great, big, scary being Guess what? That's also how the people in the Old Testament viewed God. From Genesis 3 on, running and hiding from him. And what a surprise to hear Isaiah's prophecy about God now sending a rescue, a servant, who's going to be the exact opposite of the way they viewed God. Who is just true of him? Who's this rescue, or servant, going to be small and harmless, like a tender shoot? having no majesty, a meek lamb, 
So how do you think God's people will respond to this New Testament appearance of the coming servant? No different. No different. We're going to read that they will despise him. They'll hide their faces and they'll esteem him not. So let's pray before we read this that we will be given eyes to see things from God's perspective and not from our own any longer. Let's please go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, will you by the power of your spirit break through our defenses. We pray that you'll chase us down in love, that you'll enter into our lives so that we might see your steadfast love that lasts forever in the saving work of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please turn then to Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. Now hear the word of our God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with, a, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my right to the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Each and every text in Scripture, I think you could compare to a body of water that you would walk upon. If you were to dive in, you'd actually find there's no bottom. Every word inspired by God in our Bible is so deep that you can never, ever plumb the depths of it. But when you turn to Isaiah's fourth servant song, it's not merely deep. I felt like as I walked upon it, I was walking upon a veritable ocean. (laughs) Not only can we not plumb the depths of this text, its vastness is just beyond our comprehension. Dio Moody actually once called this his creed. It had everything you needed to know about God. I'm saying that because this sermon, I can't even begin to uh, plumb the depths of it or cross even the surface of this. So I want to encourage you guys this Advent season to read this servant song yourself and to ponder what God can show you from it. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 63 and 64, his prayer that God would rend the heavens and come down. Why did he pray that? Do you remember? God's servant was in bad shape. The nation of Israel was actually God's servant. And they were in imminent danger. They had been running from God now for centuries. And Isaiah had been hitting the horn. He was the prophet hitting the horn, trying to get their attention. But now they had run so far, so fast from God that God's servant is now blind. God's servant is now deaf to his ears. And in fact, they're so hardened in their sin that now Israel, God's servant, is no different than the pagan nations. What will God do to rescue his people, his servant Israel? He's going to send another servant like them. That is what this text is teaching us. Isn't that wonderful that Almighty God, who roared, who thundered from Sinai, is now going to send someone less impressive? Surely they will see God's heart of love in the one we come to know as Jesus in the New Testament. I want us to see Isaiah's fourth servant song is God's plan of action from the crib to the cross, our Lord Jesus coming into the world. And I want to give us some words along the way to kind of help us see the stages of this rescue plan. Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Our first word is exaltation. Exaltation. God has a servant who's going to follow this strategic plan and he's going to act wisely. And Isaiah says, He shall be high and lifted up. And I encourage you not to go to the New Testament right away and think the cross, Jesus being lifted up on the cross. I know we tend to think that. Isaiah's first readers wouldn't think that. Actually, this would recall something else to those who've been reading Isaiah. You find this phrase, guess where? In chapter 6, when Isaiah had that heavenly vision, was brought into the Holy of Holies, and he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Isaiah had this heavenly throne vision where all the mighty angels are crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And this servant is going to be like that, high and lifted up. Do you hear what Isaiah is saying here? He's going to be like God, exalted like God. This is going to be an amazing servant. And that really makes our next word puzzling because our next word is consternation. After exaltation, consternation. 
Verse 14, and as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah says that when this exalted servant comes into sight, it's going to cause consternation, bewilderment. He's going to be so disfigured that when folks see him, they're not going to be asking, who is this servant? No, they're going to be asking, is this servant even human? Look at how bludgeoned he is. They're going to screw up their faces in horror. How are the early readers going to understand this (laughs) in Isaiah's day? This exalted servant is going to undergo such violence that he's not even going to look like a human being anymore. And how should you understand this? This disfigured Savior servant. You should probably be asking, how is this disfigured servant God's wise plan of action? What possible purpose could this plan accomplish? And the answer is found in our next word, in verse 15, and the word is purification. Purification. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. This servant suffering is going to result in his sprinkling. And this is sacrificial language. And let's not pretend like we get this because we no longer deal with animal sacrifices. Thanks be to God. I wouldn't want to be a pastor if we did. This was the Old Testament way, though, of dealing with sin. We hear in the Bible the wages of sin is death. We all deserve to die because we've all sinned against God. When you sin against the Almighty Creator, how can you pay that debt? But God in the Old Testament provided a way that you could be purified of your sins. An animal would die in your place, in place of the sinner. It paid your debt. You got to live because it died. First ever worship service in the Bible was in Exodus 24. And Moses, he sat here and sprinkled blood on all the worshipers so that they could be cleansed of sin. And you want to go to an Old Testament worship service? <laughs> Actually, you would. If you lived back then, if you were at that service and you saw the God of Sinai thundering, the clouds and the lightning, you'd be first in line, cleanse me because I fear that God. You go to the front of the line. But actually there's something new here we're hearing in the servant song. And our next word is revelation. Revelation. A revelation for Israel that is actually good news for us. The servant has come to sprinkle the nations to pay their wages, to pay, clear their debts. Any of you ever been under crushing debt? Thousands of dollars. You ever felt that kind of weight? (laughs) Well, this is worse because this isn't just temporary financial. This is eternal debt to the Almighty. And that's what the nations have undergone because we're so far from God and the only people allowed in are the Israelites. But now this servant is going to sprinkle the nations. He's not only going to pay the debts of that little nation of Israel, but leaders, world leaders are going to be awed. They're going to be in awed silence as white faces, as red and yellow, black and white. (laughs) We discover we're all precious in God's sight. All purified by this servant who has come to pay their debts too. Friends, this is God's plan of action. We're actually seeing God lay it out in these first verses. The Father and the Son in eternity past 
are coming up with this wise rescue plan. And I love how John Flavel, an old Puritan, he imagines this scene between the father and the son. Father, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? Son, O my father, such is my love and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there be no after reckonings with them. At my hand, you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. Father, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay to the last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Son, I am willing, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it will undo me, though it will impover all my riches and empty all my accounts, yet I am content to undertake it. Friends, do you hear this good news? Some of you may be thinking, I've messed up too bad. (laughs) You can't mess up God's plan. You are God's plan. That's what's being said right here. In fact, he brought you here today to hear the good news that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. It was the Father and the Son's plan to glorify themselves by saving you. Messed up you. And all you have to do is believe and simply receive it. And that's it. All your debt's gone. Ever felt that? Just like all your debt's wiped out? A plan that God started in eternity past. But it became real in history in our next word, the incarnation. The incarnation. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Here's stage one of God's plan, the incarnation, the arrival of Jesus on that first Christmas. What comes to mind in your mind when you think about that first Christmas? The shepherds, the star, baby Jesus in the manger, the angels. What comes to mind? (laughs) Probably not this. Isaiah offers like another lens on that charming scene, you know, that tugs our hearts. It's, It's a completely different lens. He's saying the birth of Jesus was entirely insignificant, entirely unnoticed by all the rest of the world. He describes his start like that of a young plant, a root, a shoot. Actually, it's a shoot, and it's actually reminiscent of Isaiah 11. That's what the readers would be thinking, the root of Jesse. He will be a king, but pretty unimpressive. Remember, King David was handsome. King Saul, a foot taller than everyone else. But King Jesus, he's like a little twig. (laughs) He's actually entirely unpromising when you look at him. And to make it more dour, Isaiah adds, oh, he's growing up in dry ground. 
What little plant can flourish in desert soil? He's saying he's going to have a very hard life. And then Isaiah actually then puts some flesh on Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Do you know that this is the only description of Jesus' earthly appearance in the whole Bible? It's all we got. I know this is pretty bad news for Hollywood. <laughs> and a lot of artists, right? We see the pictures. I have yet to see a picture of Jesus with moles or pimples, scraggly hair. I have yet to see one. <laughs> one of us should maybe uh, send Hollywood this, this verse here to help them in their next the casting of, of Jesus. Bad news for Hollywood. But good news for God's people, right? Because it'd be hard to actually approach someone who's just a glorious king, shining. It's a lot different, you know, than the fear of God on Sinai who boomed, you know, and thundered. And only can run because Jesus in the flesh is unimpressive. He's just like somebody I saw on the streets in the parade yesterday, right? Totally approachable. Surely God's folks will see the love of God in Jesus Christ and how you can approach him. No. Our next word is rejection. Rejection. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus, God's son, will be despised and rejected. (laughs) Part of God's wise plan of action is the rejection stage. Now, I knew this already. We all know this. But I didn't like something I saw Isaiah sneaking in here in the text. He's done it now twice in verses 2 and 3. Did you happen to notice Isaiah's writing us into the text here? He writes, We'd look at him. We would not desire him. We esteemed him not. I'll be honest, Isaiah, I don't appreciate this. You're lumping in Joel with all those superficial Jews back in the first century. I don't like that. You're saying, I'm prejudiced. You're saying, I judge by earthly appearances. And Isaiah's labeling you as well, if you're willing to hear it. And he keeps it up in the next stage. Our next word is substitution. Substitution. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. Listen to how many times you're in this text. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. pretty clear preview of Calvary and the cross, the piercing, the crushing. Do you notice that each of us are written in every single line here of Jesus' suffering? Are you willing to let Isaiah make you a little uncomfortable this morning? He says you and I are here at this scene at Calvary's cross. We're the ones looking down on Jesus as though he deserves to be on the cross. Yeah, God put him there. He deserves it. That's what Isaiah is saying. But Isaiah says that he was pierced for that cruel word you said to your spouse this last week. He was crushed because 
you decided to fulfill that lustful desire. He was crushed for that. He was there because we chose to live in God's world how we wanted. And we sat there and gave God the middle finger. And Jesus then stepped in and took the blame. And the shame. He became our substitute. If you were wondering why Jesus was a man of sorrows, it's because of me. It's because of you. Any of you struggle with depression? Sadness? Have you lost people you love? We focus a lot on how Jesus went to the cross for our sins, and that's true. And that is quite the load to bear all our sins. But there was more on Jesus when he was mounted on the cross. You're going through some rough times. You've experienced some, some sorrows. Isaiah starts with him bearing. He starts with him bearing all our shame, all your grief, all your misery. He was taking that upon himself. Your times of darkness, your times in isolation, your pain. Friend, look at Jesus hanging naked on the cross, thorns sticking into his head in a makeshift crown, spittle running down his face, being mocked, abandoned by everyone. Whatever shame or misery that you have endured, that have grieved you, look at Jesus in faith at the cross. And all that shame and misery he's absorbing for you. All those evils, all those failures, those things you so regret, look at Jesus because he'll absorb them. That's what he did there at Calvary. And what the wonderful words at the end, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do did it all there there's this wonderful hymn were you there when they crucified my lord and friends if you are a believer if you'll take hold of jesus in a real sense you were there at calvary's cross where his blood flowed and the sky went dark when he cried out for the last time and it was over. And that ought to cause us to tremble, tremble, tremble. Why should we tremble? Because Jesus' substitution, putting himself in our place, is scandalous. It's a scandal. God declares the guilty, you and I, righteous in his sight. And God declares the innocent, righteous Jesus guilty of everything we've ever done. And this scandal is what proves God's love for you. And this is something to work on as we walk out of here. It sets you free from being superficial and judgmental. How so, Joel? As I thought in this passage, I was realizing this week in a new way why folks are so critical of one another. Actually, I kept hearing it person after person, including myself. Passing judgment on others while feeling good about myself or speaking good of myself. I heard person after person saying, Pastor Joel, I'm a good person. Pastor Joel, I try to be a good person. I heard that like a thousand times this week. I don't know why it was just so prominent. Why do we judge wrongly by appearances? 
wrongly ourselves and wrongly others. Why do we do that? Here's why you talk down to others. You want others to bear your guilt. You want others to take your sin away. You realize that? If you can pass judgment on someone else and declare how bad they are, you feel a little more righteous, don't you? It's not working for me. Is it working for you? We need to repent and start looking to the only one who can make us righteous. And this is why we have to live each and every day with the cross in view because you cannot be proud if you believe in the cross and what Jesus accomplished there. Our next word is submission. And we're going to move through the rest of this quickly. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Notice Isaiah doesn't write us in here because he wants all eyes now on the servant who's done no wrong, who speaks no deceit, doesn't even judge anyone here. Jesus willingly dies. It's part of the plan of action. He submits to it. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He even tried to get Jesus to speak up in his defense. But Jesus refused because his blood could only be sprinkled if he was slaughtered. And just as Isaiah prophesied, a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea shows up, this secret disciple, and he provides a temporary tomb, a rich man's grave for Jesus' body. It's amazing. 800 years before it ever happened, (laughs) Isaiah saw this from God. Down to the minutest of details, what hope this gives you and I? It's given a lot of other people hope. Diebert Bonhoeffer, he's the famous Lutheran pastor, he knew this hope when he was imprisoned in a Nazi camp. The Allies were just about to come. Was that his hope, that the Allies, he could hear the reverberation. In fact, they would set them to camp free in just weeks. Was that his hope? Nope. He was conducting services week after week. The other prisoners there bringing them the gospel. You know the very last text he preached? Isaiah 53. And after he preached this, Word came from the guards that it was time for him to go to the gallows. And he went willingly. He didn't open his mouth. Because he had a certain hope. The doctor who witnessed him hang, he said this, In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. See, Bonhoeffer knew after submission unto death comes our final word, glorification. Glorification. Verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. 
because he poured out his soul to death and it was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I don't have time to comment on the paradox that evil men willingly put Jesus' to death at the same time it was all along God's plan of action, the Father's will to crush Jesus, his own son, so that those who are guilty of his death might be made righteous. The Father, though, I want you to see, crushed his son out of love for you. Love for you. The son endured the crushing out of love for you. Do you get that love? Do you see? Every song, other song on the pop radio stations, all love songs, right? Let me ask you, has anyone ever loved you better or more than Jesus and God the Father? Has anyone ever loved you more or better? It's that great hymn. How can it be that I should find an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused this pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? <laughs> that God can even die, that's one that makes theologians' heads spin. But that he would do it for me and you, who pursued him to death. <laughs> now that's amazing love, friends. That God still pursues us. He's running after us for our good. Even after we pursued his son to death. And to marvel that, as it says here, Jesus is satisfied in our salvation. And satisfaction, maybe that should be appended to the word glorification here. And for us too, because all who confess their sin and shame and come to Jesus, they will find their satisfaction, real satisfaction. Do you want that? Do you want satisfaction? Have you been able to find it in this world? You look around and the appearances here and you think, and then you find, oh, wait, that wasn't so satisfying. All these superficial promises. Mick Jagger couldn't find it, and he had the world by the tail. Joanne ba Joan Baez seemed to find it when she sang at Woodstock, Oh, happy day, oh, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. And you can hear her voice as she's trailing off, if only it were that easy. On one hand, she's right. It wasn't easy at all for Jesus what he did to wash us clean from all our sins, to pay all our debts. On the other hand, it really is that simple. Not easy for us, but it is simple. You may have noted that I skipped the questions at the start of the chapter. I'll land this plane by considering those. Isaiah has asked, who has believed what he has heard? Who has believed? Have you believed? Have you believed? Well, don't pat yourself on the back even for your believing because the follow-up question is about the arm of the Lord revealing it. If you have believed, it was all of God running you down and with his mighty arm taking your sin and destroying it so that you could be saved. Don't pat yourself on the back. Saving you from all your sin and shame as you looked on in horror from your little glass place. You simply had it revealed to you, God's love. It was simple, and so if you do believe now, the challenge for you is to live as those freed to love a dying world out there, out of the esteem for the one who set you free from your own self-righteousness. If you have not yet accepted the gift of Jesus' righteousness, today is the day you need to hit.
to let God wrap you up in his loving embrace. What's stopping you? What is stopping you? Do you prefer the exhausting work of trying to be a good person in comparison with everybody else? My friend, how will it go on that final day when you stand before that glorious throne that Isaiah stood before and you say to God the Father, well, I rejected the righteousness that you offered me. I know, I know you crushed your son and you offered me his righteousness, but you know what? I felt pretty confident that I could be a good enough person. How do you think that's going to go for you? But perhaps there's something else holding you back. Maybe you're saying, Pastor Joel, my life has been dry and barren. There's no chance for a new start with me. My life is, and it has always been a desert wasteland. (coughs) Maybe that's you. My friend, that's why you need to look at the manger scene with Isaiah's lens. Christmas and the incarnation provide you a certain hope. You see, Jesus never finds ideal soil to start with. He's not looking for fertilizer in any heart that he's going to enter in. It's not there. (laughs) He gets absolutely nothing from us when he gets his start. Remember, he is a root that chose to dry up, grow up in dry ground. In dry ground, oh barren wasteland. (laughs) This makes you ideal for Jesus' satisfying work. And all you have to do, what do you have to do? Just give him space. Give him a little space to start to grow. And he will show himself to you gentle and lowly, a tender shoot ready to bring new life to you. Give him time. And I guarantee you, your barren desert is going to become a marvelous garden because Jesus loves to bring salvation to those who simply see their need. And you simply have to make a little space in your life and begin to allow him in and start trusting him. Is that good news? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what manner of love is this? That we should be called your children, and such we are. And we thank you that you would give the greatest gift you could have ever given. And we confess, Lord, that too often we have run from you. We have not trusted in you. We haven't believed your promises. Forgive us, Father. And we ask right now that you will enter into our hearts. We pray that you'll continue to take away the resistance in us. We pray that you'll give us your Holy Spirit in new measures that we might trust and believe the good news that seems too good to be true, but it totally is because you can do far more and above and beyond what we could ever ask for or imagine, and you have done it already in our Lord Jesus Christ. Make him big to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.